ride with me in my foul life. We are back. We have a unbelievable episode today because it pertains to all of us, whether we are involved behind the scenes or not, it is very important that we all have a great understanding, clarification, and focus on what is happening with our culture and the environments around and the community around the American hunter, the world hunter, and everything that goes into being a conservationist and a gatherer and a provider. And I've stressed it so much here especially on the foul thoughts portion of our podcast brought to you by Safari Club International. And today's episode is brought to you again by SCI, First for Hunters. Safari Club International to me is, it's a, it's a tricky one for a lot. I had a little bit of a head start with it because I grew up in the area where their national convention was held quite often in this, this part of northern Nevada. We're going to talk about that today, the status of the, the national convention and what is going on right now with, you know, kind of uh, the climate of our country and the world with the pandemic. And hopefully it's starting to lay down a little bit and we get to go back to work in the ways that we are used to. Today's guest is a man that has all of this focus on his shoulders every day. He's Laird Hamberlin. He is the CEO of Safari Club International and the Safari Club International Foundation, SCIF. Laird, welcome, my friend. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. It's an honor to have you here. And I would think that you are probably one of the busiest men in in the country right now when it comes to this aspect of whether it's shooting rights, hunting, um, outdoors, conservation. Is that safe to say? We're all busy and, and, you know, it's all about prioritization. And that's one of the things that we are prioritizing here at SCI and SCIF is, you know, our four pillars. The four pillars are what we're kind of um, setting ourselves to as it relates to uh, hunting and advocacy and conservation. And those four pillars are membership, convention, advocacy itself, and conservation. And we'll talk a little bit about that, uh, I'm sure, during our time together. But um, it's great to be here. I've got to tell you, Safari Club International, also known as SCI, really uh, needs some explaining because a lot of people think, oh, Safari Club International is a bunch of folks going over to uh, Africa and hunting. And that's, that's, you know, not necessarily the case. Safari means journey. It could be a journey to the next city, to the next county, to the next state, to the next uh, country, whether it's Mexico or uh, or Canada, or even the next continent. It doesn't have to be all about Africa. And the majority of the stuff that we do with SEI, 60% of it, is actually in uh, the United States. And that's what we're here for. I mean, we do a lot of conservation work right here in our own backyard. And people ask me all the time, they go, Laird, you know, you're CEO of SCI and SCIF. You must love to hunt animals all around the world. And I said, yeah, I do. And I have hunted animals all around the world. I've fished all around the world, you know, and I've hunted big game and birds all around the world. But, uh, you know, I'm born and raised in Mississippi. And uh, my favorite thing to hunt is what I call DDT. And everybody looks at me and they go, what do you mean DDT? I said, my favorite things to hunt are deer, ducks, and turkeys, and that's right here in our own backyard. So uh, turkey season is, a, is upon us uh, here in this, you know, March 
time frame of 2021. It's already opened up in Florida. And as uh, we go north with the weather and it gets warmer, it'll start opening up in a bunch of different states uh, each and every week. But uh, yeah, deer ducks and turkeys, my favorite uh, thing to do with my uh, chocolate lab named Ranger, who's 14 months old, had a great first season. And uh, we really did well uh, on the ducks and the doves too, by the way. But uh, yes, Safari Club is here for advocacy, conservation, our members, it is a membership organization uh, and our convention, which we're coming up on our 50th convention. It's gonna be in Vegas uh, in January and it is gonna be a true blowout uh, celebrating 50 years of our existence. And uh, we're happy uh, to have it in Vegas at Mandalay Bay and we look forward to another 50 years because after we have our 2022 convention there in January, uh, it goes to Nashville for three years and then we'll rotate between uh, New Orleans and Indianapolis. So we're going to take it around the country, our convention, because it's just such a great event. I will tell you a funny story. Um, my kids, when when they were growing up and we'd got to go off the convention, they called it uh, Daddy Spring Break because uh, I got so excited about it. I was packing weeks before. It was great to see friends and all the good times that we were having, but they labeled uh, the Safari Club International Convention every year as Daddy Spring Break. And uh, they knew what was going on. Then they got old enough to, to attend, as uh, as did my wife. And she's like, why did I not come to all these things up until now? You've been having all the fun and we haven't. I didn't know what it was about till I, uh, I, I came and now I can't get her not to come. I'm like, honey, you coming this year? And she goes, I'm going to be there before you get there. My flight arrives before yours does. So um, the kids it. show up and it's just a great time all around. I, that's what I was referring to, you know, and, and it's in Vegas, but for a lot of years, it's been in where I live in Reno, Nevada. And um, yep. Safari Club is is one of those things. I got I have a couple thoughts, Mr. Laird, as you were talking. One, where you hail from and where you're born and raised. There could have been an S, I believe, on the end of the, the DDT, the deer, ducks and turkey comment, because I have had many great squirrel meals in the state of Mississippi. Is this, some, <laughs> is this something that you partake in as the president of SCI? Can we assume that the president of, or the CEO of SCI eats squirrels? Absolutely. hundred <laughs> percent. So I love uh, it. it's not, you know, interestingly enough, we had a little bit of squirrel and rabbit about three weeks ago at uh, our hunting camp where we were, uh, we had some squirrel dogs and we had some rabbit dogs down there at uh, our place and we had uh, had it all cooked up. So yes, I do partake in squirrels uh, and rabbits for that matter, but yeah, you definitely could put an S on the end of that. And the other, one of the other thoughts is it is sometimes easy to think that Safari Club was for somebody that was doing something besides hunting squirrels with some dogs or chasing mallard ducks in Arkansas or wild pigs in California. Um, there's so much hunting in the continental United States. And then you add the hunting on the Hawaiian Islands and the Alaska. We all know what Alaska is about. But when you would watch Jim do his thing, it, sometimes in your mind, you would think, okay, well, that is for going on different continents. That is for being over in Africa and hunting the Dangerous Five or the Plains game in South Africa or Tanzania or any of the great countries on the continent of Africa. Um, tell me, Mr. Laird, 
22-year-old kid in America driving in his pickup truck down a dirt road in Kansas looking for turkeys right now in March, April, springtime 2021. What would having that sticker, that decal on his truck mean as as a 22-year? Why is it important for us to get involved right now with SCI? Because it is first for hunters and it's for all hunters. You're absolutely correct. It is first for hunters. We are not a single species organization. We are not a single continent organization. And there's nothing wrong with those other organizations, by the way, they're fine organizations, but we're helping protect hunters and the hunter's rights to hunt. We're not just DU, protecting ducks. Great organization. Adam's a good friend of mine. That's uh, my peer over there, my counterpart over there. You know, we're not Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation just looking after elks or Mule Deer Foundation just looking after mule deer. Uh, and I could go on and on and on. We are looking after all species and the rights to hunt all of those species. And this is where SCI, you know, has not up until now, and we're changing that narrative, uh, crowed about what all that we do. We have a legal team on staff in our Washington, D.C. office. We have a lobbyist group on staff in our Washington, D.C. office. We have other organizations that come to us to help them fight for hunters' rights. And most people don't realize that SEI is the one doing that. We're not just hiring a part-time lobbyist and saying, oh, we're lobbying in Washington, D.C. And the reason why they're saying that is because they're hiring a part-time lobbyist. Don't get me wrong. We've got third-party part-time lobbyists that work for us as well, but we have full-time on staff lobbyists as, as well. We're not just paying a law firm in D.C. to represent us in case something comes up and they go, oh, well, we've got lawyers in Washington, D.C. too, because we do have third-party lawyers as well, but we have lawyers on staff in our Washington, D.C. office that all they're doing is changing the narrative on some of these bills that we as hunters may never even know about. And the, having that sticker on the back of your window is just showing that you are in the fight for advocacy and you're in the fight for conservation as a whole, not as a single species. We've got some situations right now, there's two bills that are currently in the legislature right now that we're fighting that most people don't even know about. And those involve some things that could change the whole dynamics of hunting in the United States. One of them, the wording, very clearly states, you cannot fly with a rifle or shotgun, which means if you wanted to go from Reno, Nevada to Florida to hunt turkeys or to Northern California to hunt hogs, you couldn't take a rifle or a shotgun and fly with it. The other thing is, is you couldn't go to those same locations and use that guide or professional hunters shotgun or rifle either. So what does that mean? You've got to drive. So most people don't even know that these bills are in the system right now as we speak, and SCI is fighting to get them defeated, fighting to get them taken out. We're working with the NRA. I tell everybody I talk to that if you're a gun owner, you need to belong to, an, to the NRA, which I'm a life member of, by the way. If you're a hunter, you need to belong to SCI, which I'm a life member, by the way. So think of it that way. If you're a gun owner, you need to belong to NRA. If you're a hunter, and no matter what you hunt, it could be rabbits, squirrels, deer, ducks, or turkeys, 
or anything anywhere around the world. If you're a hunter, you need to belong to SCI. That's what it's all about. But our advocacy efforts and what we're doing on Capitol Hill is second to none. And again, these are employees that are on our payroll. And we're not talking about one lawyer or two lawyers. We're talking multiple lawyers. We're not talking about one lobbyist or two lobbyists. We're talking about multiple lobbyists in addition to those that we partner with that are also lobbyists and lawyers from other firms that help our in-house lawyers and lobbyists work through the federal and state systems. When you start talking like that, one of the things that comes to mind, Mr. Laird, is voting and education and being educated. And one of the things that I talk about a lot and listen to a lot are science and proof and emotion. And I feel that a lot of the things like the two bills that you just said, we just went through this in the last 60 days in California with the ban, the bear hunting, the the bear hunting in California has already been outlawed with dogs, cougar hunting, mountain lion hunting in the state of California has been outlawed. There's scientific documentation of what predator management does, not just to the human species, it, not just to the wildlife populations that inhabit these areas or the wolves in Montana, something like this in Idaho, Wyoming. Um, and there's scientific proof of what predator management does t- for that own species and the health of that own species of the bear or the wolf or whatever predator we're talking about, coyotes, red foxes. Voting with emotion is where a lot of this gets sideways, in my opinion, and I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but I think that having scientific proof and data after research is done of why it's important to bear hunt where bears are so you know common to see in like a state like California, is that fair to say that you hear that a lot? And is that something that is being looked into of, hey, let's get the facts and the scientific proof before we go and put our vote in and cast it? So it's interesting that this is such a a hot topic because, you know, voting by the ballot box is the wrong way to handle any kind of conservation efforts, period. That should be left to the professionals. So we hear about all of this Green New Deal and all of this stuff as it relates to what's happening with the environment and they use all of this data and all of these stats and all of this information about climate change and everything else. But, but when you start using the same type of scientific evidence and the same type of data to explain the carrying capacity of a species in a state or a continent or a country, they don't want to hear it. They are judging by emotion. And here's a good example of, let's just talk about Africa, since we said Africa. Africa's got some countries that have an elephant carrying capacity of 4,500. Let me repeat that. Carrying capacity of 4,500. That's all the country can hold with the flora and flora and the food. They've got 55,000 elephants in that one country with a carrying capacity of 4,500. There's another country with carrying capacity of 3,500, and they've got 45,000. That just goes to show you that those herds need to be managed, but because of emotion, 
they are not being managed properly. If you looked at my Facebook page uh, or my Instagram, if you're following me, you know that I was just in Louisiana last week on a DIN visit with the local SCI Arcadiana chapter there provides collars for tracking bears and mothers and dens. And they go in, they take hair samples, they're putting microchips between their shoulders to track them and, you know, as well as putting the radio collars on. We were in there and I was asking the biologist, you know, how many bears do you have in Louisiana? And she's the number one biologist, you know, not only in the state, but could be in the in the United States. And she said, we have recorded about 750, probably closer to 1,000, 1,250. Are you at your carrying capacity? And she's like, yes, we've relocated bears. And, you know, we're trying to figure out what to do with these excess bears, because then all of a sudden they're going to become nuisance. Then all of a sudden they're going to become harmful. Then all of a sudden they're going to be harmful, not only to the flora and flora in the state of Louisiana, but they're going to start damaging themselves. And some people are cruel and saying, oh, we just let nature take its course. And there'll be some kind of virus or whatever that'll kill them all and then they'll get rid of them. Why would we want to do that when the, the states can find additional revenue by putting a hunting season on them and offtaking whatever the biologist recommends as the offtake with a hunting season. Because if you get to what's happening in New Jersey, New Jersey is at a point of diminishing return. They are out of control with the number of bears and the carrying capacity that they have there in New Jersey. Therefore, they will never be able to catch up with the, with the bear population and the number of cubs that they have you know, three is normal on average two after you've lost cubs that they have every other year with their current numbers. So the same thing could be said about this elephants. Same thing could be said about bears. The same thing is being said about wolves, but we've got to use science and we've got to use data in order to make that argument, not the ballot box. But let me just add one more thing here, if I may. We've talked about polar bears, speaking of bears, having trouble in Canada and that we need to quit hunting them and shut the importation of polar bears down from returning to the United States from a Canadian hunt. Do you know how many polar bears were not hunted because of the closure to the United States? The answer is none. They still had the same quota and they still actually have increased in population not decreased. And we want to explain that just a little bit. What I'm saying there is, is that the licenses are given to the Indians in Canada, the native Indians of Canada. They are using that for sustenance purposes, as well as revenue generation. Just because they closed it to Americans, they shot the exact same number of, of polar bears year in and year out and still do. And then people go, well, this data, you know, states that polar bears are, you know, declining. That's the furthest thing from the truth. What they did is they cherry picked one specific area. That's about a 10 by 10 area, by the way, and said, we had three polar bears in there last year. Now we've only got two. Well, first of all, that's a 10 by 10 area. It's not a 10 million square mile by 10 million square mile area, you know? 
And they used this data and they cherry picked this data to make an argument that was totally untrue. And even the biologist stated that. But again, people are making decisions on emotions. So then we get back and circle this conversation around to climate change and everything else associated with what people are saying we should do and shouldn't do, but they wanna use data and statistics to justify that, but not what trained professionals, biologists, PhDs are using to judge what's going on with animals. And, and just in the last five minutes of this conversation, we've gone over elephants and overcapacity in two different African countries. We've talked about the polar bears cherry picking one 10 by 10 spot with data that says Americans can't come up here because we're, they're in trouble. They're in turmoil. But the exact same amount of tags are being issued to the Native, Ameri- Native Canadian Indians up there. And the same amount of bears are being harvested. Then we talked about the bears in California, the cougars in California. This is all stuff that I would... I would think that it would be safe to assume, which we all know what happens when you assume. And I don't even know the number of American. I'm just talking American hunters that know these fights are going on behind the scenes. Um, This is the advocacy part of the four pillars that you started talking about, Mr. Laird. This, to me, is the most important thing for that sticker on that truck to understand what is going on for the future generations of hunting, that when you're a 22, 23 year old kid, male or female, and you're starting your journey as you're on your own, you're in your truck, you're paying for your own gas, you got your own decoy spread, you got your own gun and getting your own shotgun shells. It's easy to get sidetracked of like, Hey, the piles make smiles. We got to get a limit. We got to get the picture. We got to get the likes on Instagram. And that's all cool. I get it. It's all part of the maturing process. My deal is when listening to you talk with the passion that you have for this is that we all have to get involved sooner. And that's why I brought up that age group of understanding that this stuff is going on, whether we want to admit it or not, when we're listening to our our music on TikTok, going down a dirt road in Kansas, looking for turkeys, we have to understand this is the most important part of this to ensure that at 21, if I have a kid when I'm 35 and I have a grandkid after that, there could be times where this is not going to be happening as easy as it is in our, you know, in our lives in America right now. That's where I'm going with it is that it is so important with advocacy and what you're discussing. It's not to be taken for granted. We are not entitled to this. And I always talk about what my good friend, Remy Warren says, Mr. Laird is it's a privilege and it's not written into our constitution that we have the right to do this. And listening to you talk, there are so many instances where people are literally, these lobbyist groups and these antis are trying. If you say you can't fly with a gun to Florida and you can't use an outfitter's gun when you get there, they're pretty much saying you can't hunt because we know a lot of you don't have time to drive across America to chase an Osceola turkey. That's really what they're saying. And if we didn't have SCI and these other foundations and organizations fighting for our rights behind the scenes, At 22 years old, we have to understand it's go time. We have to protect this. And that's where I think listening to you talk is so important of advocacy is getting involved now. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we were one of the very few organizations that, you know, campaigned against, you know, now uh, Secretary of the Interior Highlands confirmation because she could not guarantee that there would be no net loss of opportunities for hunting and fishing 
to those out there in the United States that wanted to hunt and fish because the prior administration had opened up a tremendous amount of hunting opportunities and fishing opportunities throughout the United States. And we don't want to see any of that closed or access restricted. You know, most of the people west of the Mississippi are BLM hunters. They're hunting on Bureau of Land Management, land, public lands. You do get into some um, areas that are private owned and in some cases hunting clubs. For the most part, everything east of the Mississippi is private lands. And there are some uh, BLM lands or refuges where you can hunt by draws and things of that nature, but most of it is on private land. You've got to be able to manage the differences across the United States, but you can't take any current access for hunting or fishing away from any of the sportsmen that are out there. And that's what we were pressing now Secretary of the Interior Highland about saying, we need to make sure that you're going to ensure that that doesn't happen. And we want you to also ensure that what happens in other countries is left to other countries to manage. You know, we can't sit here and tell those in Canada what they should do with their polar bears or those in Africa, what they should do with their elephants or those in New Zealand, what they should do with their tar or chamois. Those, that, those decisions should be left up to those communities and those countries to make that decision and not the United States. However, in some cases, most cases, as the, uh, the United States is trying to manage everybody else's resources and SCI is trying to come up with and has come up with specifics relating to data, not emotion, that justifies keeping hunting seasons open or expanding hunting seasons or in some cases opening hunting seasons for where, when it had been there. And that's what everybody needs to understand. Again, I'm gonna say it again. If you own a gun, you should belong to NRA. And if you hunt, no matter what you hunt, you should belong to SCI because they're fighting for your right to hunt, whether it's through the data that we are creating and communicating, whether it's conservation, uh, whether it's you know through our membership and what their needs are, all from funds raised at our convention. When you start breaking down the four pillars pillars and going <clears throat> down the list conservation some people think that conservation is you don't hunt you don't take species out of the ecosystem you outlaw hunting you ban hunting we're anti-hunting um we um Autobahn's okay because we're just taking pictures of birds from a bird tower i've seen a lot of instances where i sit back and think where would this be, Mr. Laird? Where would the duck population, the wild turkey foundation or the wild turkey population in our country, the Rocky Mountain elk being introduced to places and, and surviving and th thriving, predator control, all of this, where would conservation efforts be without hunters? And we always say hunters are the ultimate, the, the ultimate conservationists, Mr. Laird. Is this the case, or is it just easy to roll that off our tongues because we've been conditioned to say so, or is the proof in the pudding? Look, I mean, you talked about Audubon and the fact that they're, you know, picture-taken organization. Go back and look at the history of the Audubon family. They were hunters. All of these organizations that are out there, including SCI, that are for conservation, whether it's the Elk Foundation, National Wild Turkey Federation, whomever it may be, it's all formed by hunters, even those long ago. I mean, Theodore Roosevelt 
is the one, the, the ultimate hunting president that we had that was creating, you know, these refuges around the United States because he wanted to make sure that hunting was still going to be there. I mean, Roosevelt went to Africa a number of times. We have his collection in our museum at our Tucson headquarters. We have all of his African animals there in the museum. He hunted all over the place, but he was also very understanding of the need for conservation, hence the refuge program that he instilled and other programs that he instilled throughout the United States during his presidency. So all of these hunters that are out there are true conservationists in their own right. It's just like this bear den review that I was talking about earlier. You know, we're trying to get the bear population up for the survival of the species. And does that include hunting them at some point in time? Absolutely. We're not raising them and doing conservation in order to hunt them. We're having conservation to grow the population and using hunting as a method of population control. And that's what we're trying to do so that more people can see bears that they might not be able to see in the wild. I mean, I've hunted in places that, you know, most people don't even know where the countries are, including all the stand countries that are out there. I've shot animals you don't shoot uh, or don't see rather in the zoo. Um, and, you know, it's amazing as to what people know and don't know and understand and don't understand is based on what they can Google or what they can read on Facebook or something else that, that might just be fake news when you start peeling the onion back and getting to the facts. For instance, the polar bear scenario. Polar bears are not declining. They are not in trouble, period. And everybody will tell you that, but you who are the loudest uh, voice, the squeaky wheel gets the grease and the media controls the narrative in a lot of cases. And they're looking at this information and they're going, well, let's tell everybody that they're in trouble when they're not. Elephants are not in trouble. Elephants are like white-tailed deer in the United States. They are becoming a nuisance. And you don't have anybody anywhere else around the world tell you that. Um, so people also don't want to talk about how hunting is a gory sport. I mean, you're killing things. But at the same time, those leather shoes that you wear came from a violent act. There was a cow that was killed in order to make that leather or that belt or that briefcase that you've got. You know, hunting is not you're walking around in the daisies and in the flowers. It's a violent sport and you're doing different things. So people need to understand that. But people also need to understand that we're all doing what we're doing because I eat everything I shoot. It's a field to fork program. Has been in my house all the time. I've got three boys. And I tell you, we had to take five deer to get processed every year. Or, you know, we're going to have to buy beef out of the grocery store. And my wife would tell me, okay, you need to get a couple more deer processed because we're getting low on hamburger meat. Our back straps or tenderloins or roast. We do, we were big on roast, putting a roast uh, in a crock pot with some Lipton onion soup mix and cream and mushroom soup and potatoes and carrots. Turn it on before you left for work and come back and it was ready when you got home at night for dinner. And that was a deer roast. So that was a staple at our house, you know, every other week. And I still is. But I mean, the field to fork program is truly what people do. I mean, we're hunting ducks uh, and we love duck at our house and uh, same thing for geese. Now snow geese, totally different scenario. You cook it on a you know piece of cardboard in the oven and then 
throw the duck away and eat cardboard, but that's a whole nother story with snow geese. But it's, uh, <laughs> we do eat it, you know, and you eat what you, you and when you're in, the, in another country, they definitely eat everything. In some cases, that's their only protein that they get. When you shoot an animal, no matter how big or how small, they're looking at it as an opportunity to feed their families based on hunters. And that's why they're so excited to see them coming to the country and hunt. And when you talk about, <clears throat> excuse me, when you talk about these numbers and becoming a potential nuisance, is this because conservation efforts are so strong and anti, you know, prohibiting hunting is happening in areas or they're stopping the access or they're stopping the ability for someone to come in and harvest the quota or the right amount because the scientific proof is being overlooked or overshadowed with the motion? Is it both of them combined that the conservation is here because hunters are spending the money? Hunters are a big part of tourism and revenue driven. Like if you think about the Canadian borders closing, these small prairie towns in Saskatchewan, Alberta, Manitoba, uh, Ontario, Think about these outfitters. If they had to go through this another year, I don't know what would happen on to the ones that don't have farming as a backup. You know, um, is it because the conservation, Mister Laird, is so strong, and the and the and that the the hunting is being prohibited to the point to where now you're going to g you be careful what you ask for, kind of scenario? Well, I think emotion is overruling data, and we've got to change that narrative. We've got to. We've got to keep pounding on the fact that we have the data that supports hunting and supports, you know, regulated hunting uh, anywhere in the world. And we've got to quit judging with emotion, you know, not wanting to have a wolf hunt because wolves are cute is not the answer to not having a wolf hunt. You know, people don't understand the downstream effects of what wolves do to other species, whether it's mule deer, white-tailed deer, elk, and I could go on and on and on. The reason why they were eradicated prior to being reintroduced is because of the damage that they were doing to other species. And the old cliche that history repeating itself is coming into play. History is repeating itself by we've got too many wolves, you know, it's killing all the other species because they've got to eat. And then all of a sudden, people are going to want to eradicate the wolves because they like the elk and the mule deer and the white-tailed deer. And they don't understand that you have to manage those populations. And managing those populations are going to be the key through hunting. It amazes me where, or where, where there are certain towns, townships, cities that don't want to have hunting in their areas but then they'll turn around and let sharpshooters come in and harvest hundreds of animals at night to get rid of the population. And they don't realize the revenue that they've lost. Most people do not understand the Pittman-Robertson Act and the fact that every one of those rangers that you see out there at all of these national parks, all of these game wardens are all being partially funded by hunters and the Pittman-Robertson Act, where the, the additional excise tax is being added to their fees for guns and ammo. You tell people that, they don't realize that. They do not understand that. They, do, they just think that it's a, a benefit of the government. That's coming from hunters and what they're paying for licenses and tags. I will say in 2020 and 2021 so far, the good thing about COVID, if there is anything positive to come out of it, 
is that licensed sales in these states are up double digits. And that is additional revenue for these parks and recreations and game wardens and things of that nature. But yeah, we've got to take the emotion out of this and it's got to be data-based solutions because then don't talk to me about climate change and data and all of the uh, information there if you can't look at it somewhere else. And let's make sure that people understand when you say regulated hunting, Mr. Laird, SCI does not stand for poaching. They do not stand for illegal take of game. They do not stand for anything that is going to, one, put that species in peril, or two, give this culture a black eye. Talk to me a little bit about poaching around the world and the efforts and advocacy and conservation that SCI stands behind and formulates and funds that go to stopping this type of unregulated hunting that we call poaching. We all saw the stop sign in hunter safety, stop poaching, Nevada Department of Wildlife, California Wildlife, wherever we were, our DNRs, stop poaching. How important is it to stop poaching? Well, first of all, it gives hunters a black eye. I mean, poachers are not hunters. And for those that have been around and have noticed, SCI has helped in a number of cases by giving funds to the particular game and fish department to find a poacher as part of the donation uh, and part of the reward for helping find a poacher. But poachers give hunters a black eye and we don't want to have anything to do with them. And it is not the same. Poachers are doing things illegally. Hunters are doing things legally. Poachers are doing things that, you know, benefit, you know, themselves. Hunters are doing things that not only benefit themselves, but also the species as well as the organizations in which those animals are taken. Let's just look at Africa, for example. Poaching is a way of life in some cases for people to survive. I mentioned earlier about that might be the only protein that they get. Well, every time you enter an animal into the record book, a portion of those funds go into an SCI anti-poaching donation to specific outfitters in Africa and around the world that have anti-poaching programs. So we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars a year on, on anti-poaching programs around the world because we don't want to be associated with it at all. And we want to help those people who are fighting the poaching scenario on the ground in these particular countries. And we're helping them do that by us funding some of those po poaching programs, some of their poaching programs that are out there. We've got a big program going on right now that is with dogs in Africa where they are training specific specific canine units to help track down and capture poachers with the, this canine group. And there's a tremendous amount of uh, effort going on behind that, trying to track these, these bad guys down because poachers are terrible for the species and they're terrible for the industry. And we've got to make sure that uh, we eradicate them just like we do any other problem animal. When, you, when you're talking about poachers, one of the things that comes to mind is, and this is a little bit off course, but I wanted to find out some information on hunting animals such as the tiger and the history of that. Poaching was a big part of this because of the black market, the trade. Um, 
where are we in the world today with are are there certain species that will never come back to the strength that they once were because of the power of poaching um and now these anti-poaching you know efforts are in place whether or not they're doing it for protein or trade it's still illegal it's taken its toll on some species right mr laird yeah, I think that there's no doubt that there's been issues out there, but I also think that there's been recovery efforts that should be commended. You know, the the uh, the rhino is a good example of that. What they do in China with, you know, the rhinoceros horns is just deplorable. I mean, a rhino horn is made up of the exact same thing called keratin that your fingernails and toenails are made of. However, they think in China that is some kind of uh, specific sexual type of enhancement, which, you know, equates to, you know, the little blue pill or whatever that we call it over here now. You don't even need that kind of stuff, even if it was that case. So it's ridiculous that uh, rhinos are even still being poached and killed for their rhino horns. I will say that I darted a rhino as part of my big five and, you know, instead of shooting it, we dart them now. And they put a microchip in both their horns. They took blood for blood samples and determined the health of the rhino. They took hair samples. And uh, we then injected them with vitamins in order to make sure they're healthy. So now they've got a, a you know, microchip in both their horns in case somebody ever does take that rhino. They will be found because we'll be able to track that information from that um that microchip. But anyway, the point I'm trying to make here is that there are success stories on animals that have been challenged. The rhino is a good example. And we will continue to increase the rhino population. The cheetah is another one. One that is making strides back is the tiger. But then again, you have to realize that people want to suppress positive information about success stories, whether it's cheetah, whether it's rhino, whether it's a tiger, because that's where they're going to get their funds from is they want to go out to these people and again, use emotion and say, Oh my gosh, the elephants in decline when it's not, Oh my gosh, the polar bears in there are in decline, which it's not send money, send money to help fight, you know, polar bear hunting or, or elephant hunting, this, that, and the other, when in actuality, they're doing great. You know, some of these other areas, you've got animals that are not, going down because of hunting, it's because of population encroachment. People don't even know what animals are in Ethiopia. They, some of them don't even know where Ethiopia is, but because of the population explosion in Ethiopia, you've got issues with animals there and the encroachment of humans into areas that were animal populated and were their home ranges and they're having to adapt and move. So most people don't even think of things like that. All they're thinking about is who's the easiest one to blame, what's got the most emotion behind it, and how can I raise funds to line my pocket in order to keep my job and keep my income and my check coming in every week because I'm raising funds off of narratives that are incorrect. And that's what's going on out there. Again, using emotion and saying, because of this or because of that, send your money in even though they're not looking at data. And when they do look at data, they're taking a very small subset that only 
relates to their narrative of what they're trying to say and not to the entire program. When we talked about that truck in Kansas on that dirt road, Mr. Laird, and that decal on the back, you also had mentioned earlier in our conversation about the lobbyists, about the attorneys, about counsel, about payroll that SCI has to where you don't have to go out and hire a certain firm or a certain lobbyist group. Where could we be rest assured and confident in where these dollars are going? They say strength is in numbers. We want to drive membership to SCI for several different reasons. Can you give me a rundown of those reasons, Mr. Laird, and where that money is going once we do become a member and pay our yearly dues or our life membership dues? Where is it going and what is being done with it, if you can give me a rundown? Yeah, I think it's a great question. You know, look, Charity Navigator is right in our own backyard every single day trying to figure out what we're doing with all of our funds. How much is going to administrative costs? How much is going to fundraising costs? How much is it going to advocacy costs and things of that nature. So there is a group that's out there that is looking over our shoulder, making sure that they rate us, you know, appropriately. So that's the first thing. As anything is, is what all is out there that we do work on from advocacy, whether it's, you know, the big five bill that we helped defeat in California, whether it's the Colorado Wolf Initiative, even though we lost by the smallest of margins, we were still fighting the fight. Who do we support and help support you know, in Congress and help get elected that are like-minded individuals in the Senate and in uh, the House that we want on our side. You know, we were very successful in 97% of those House and Senate races that ran, we won based on, you know, those that we we chose to support. That's an unfathomable number of um, congressmen and senators that we backed that won their races. I mean, I could go on about what we're doing, not only in the United States with the Michigan Predator Prey Project and how that's fundamentally changed the way we manage white-tailed deer, you know, in the Northern tier of the United States. You know, the, the lion work that we do in Africa and what's going on out there and how we were very instrumental in, in Tanzania and Masaland because in Masaland, for you to be considered a warrior, you needed to kill a lion. That was the rite of passage. And we were like, wait a minute, let's put regulations and let's put hunting behind this to where the Maasai warrior can go with the hunter and the hunter takes the lion. They both get credit for, you know, taking the lion as a warrior and as a hunter. And then there's also funds generated for the local communities because local communities at the end of the day are going to be the ones that need to manage their resources, just like in the States and what they're doing, managing their state resources. So I could go on about all kinds of different options and opportunities that we elect to participate in and not participate in, but it's all based on what's the right thing to do for the hunters and our members, both here in the United States, as well as worldwide. And rest assured, your your money's going well spent as to what's happening. I agree. Do you agree with the statement that I've heard quite often that things start in California and spread eastward, the bears we talked about, the mountain lions. What does this mean to hear this? Is it true in your opinion or is there data to back that up? We hear if we live in 
Mississippi, where you're from, Mr. Laird, and we hear, oh, that's not going to affect us. They're outlawing bears in California. They're trying to. They've already got the cougar on the ban list, the big five that you guys helped defeat. What does that mean to somebody in Mississippi or Florida when they hear that going on all the way across the country? Does it start there and spread eastward, or is there another way to put that? Well, I, I've heard that um, that comment before. We've got a similar type of bill that was put forward in the California legislature in the Connecticut legislation that we had to defeat as well. And I think you need to think of it this way as, you know, why are we fighting for the Second Amendment and not letting anybody take our, our guns away from us or do make any adjustments uh, to any of the gun regulations? Because if they chip away at one thing, it's going to be one thing today. It's going to be one thing tomorrow. The same thing is in hunting. If they chip away at closing bear season in New Jersey, you know, it's going to be an issue eventually somewhere else across the United States. If they close mountain lion hunting in California, it's going to be eventually an issue somewhere else. So you've got to fight that fight wherever it may be, realizing that, hey, I might not have mountain lions in Mississippi, but I need to make sure that I'm protecting the ability to use dogs to hunt with in California so that I can hunt with dogs in Mississippi. Or I need to make sure that that species is protected so that they can hunt it before they do get to something like white-tailed deer or ducks or turkeys in Mississippi to where they, um, they change the rules and regulations. So we're all in this together. We're hunters. We're not hunters from Mississippi or hunters from California or hunters from Reno. We're hunters. And we have to manage our other hunters to make sure that they don't do anything stupid and that we manage our social media so that we're not looked at the wrong way. And we accentuate the positive and we try to overcome the negative. We need to talk about all the positive things that hunters do for not only Pittman-Robertson revenue receivers in the federal government or on the state level, but what that means trickle down. In other words, you get to go and hike, even though you might not be a hunter. You know, go out and buy a hunting license, even though you might not be a hunter. That's only going to help your state keep those, you know, parks and all the other different refuges open across the United States. When you start talking about hunters and coming together. And there is so much optimism and positivity come out. You mentioned the pandemic and all of the new hunters and fishers and and shooters and gun owners in our country. <clears throat> but there, are, there also is something to say about expenditures and how much income or money somebody has to give to a conservation organization. Choosing that conservation organization or, you know, uh, the advocacy part of it or – the, you know, the convention part of it we've talked about with SCI. You said if you're a hunter, you need to be a member of SCI. If you're a gun owner, you need to be a member of National Rifle Association, the NRA. How do we choose, Mr. Laird? If I have a certain amount of money every year and I live in South Dakota or Nebraska and I know that Pheasants Forever is prolific up there, if I live in Georgia and we got Quail Unlimited down there, if I'm in Nevada, Mule Deer Foundation, Nevada Bighorns Unlimited, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, National Wild Turkey, there's a lot of them, Ducks Unlimited, Delta Waterfowl, we can go on and on. They all are awesome. They all serve a purpose. How do we tell somebody or educate somebody on that decision-making process of, we want you to be a member of SCI, 
but they're also telling themselves, okay, but I also have to protect the pheasant. And there's an, is there an overlay here? You know what I'm saying? Is there something that's going to blanket this to where we can educate people on that expenditure and which groups to support? Well, I, I would put it this way. I think that, you know, if you had three checks to write, you would write one to SCI if you're a hunter. You would write one to NRA because if you're going to hunt, you need to have a weapon. And then the third one is going to be to the, the area which you want to fund the most, whether that's DU or Delta Waterfowl, whether that's Pheasants Forever or Quill Unlimited, whether that's Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation or Mule Deer Foundation. So some people are just elk hunters. Then I'd write a check to NRA. I'd write a check to SCI. I'd write a check to Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Some people are just bird hunters. I'd write a check to SCI, write a check to NRA. Then I try to figure out, do I want to write it to Delta Waterfowl, DU, Pheasants Forever, or Quell Unlimited? You know, interestingly enough, you've also got to realize that some of these organizations are not there to help hunters. They are there to protect the species. Therefore, you may be making a donation to another organization, and they're actually taking hunting away from you because they want to preserve specific areas of land and not let anybody hunt on it. And I'm not sure that that's, that some people know that either. And that just damages in my mind, the opportunity of no net loss opportunities to hunt somewhere. If you go out and buy a big track of land and say no hunting and you're a hunting organization, I'm not so sure I, that's where I want to spend my money. But if you're out there looking for looking out for hunters so that they can hunt more and that their hunting rights are protected, I would definitely say it's SCI, NRA, and then whatever other uh, choice you want to make. From 2016 to 2020, I think it was apparent that opportunities, you've all also touched on this, Mr. Laird, opportunities were becoming abundant for hunters, lands opening up, wilderness areas, uh, refuge systems, opportunities for hunters, rights for hunters. <clears throat> the Klamath Basin in Northern California, Southern Oregon, the Thule Basin, the first waterfowl refuge system to ever be put into effect in 1908 by the same man that you spoke about that went to Africa, that you have his collection in Tucson office, Mr. President Roosevelt. We have seen people coming together and getting more involved in this sport. And there's also a president that was supporting this and they were making strides to open up more opportunity. Would you look at the hunting population now, if you were behind a podium and you had all of us out in front of you, would these words be spoken by you buckle up? Cause it's going to get, it's going to get nasty here pretty soon. Do you see this? What can we expect? Is there a way to put this under a microscope or better yet in a crystal ball and have Mr. Laird Hammerlin say, Hey, it's time to buckle up. We got to come together more than ever right now. Is that the message right now? Or would it be said in different wording? No, I think buckle up. It's going to be hell of a ride is the right way to say it for the, at least the next couple of years. You've got agendas that are out there by some on the liberal left that don't understand hunting and are misinformed because of bad information, bad data, bad whatever. And you got some people that are just living off emotion and they wanna do something and they don't understand the downstream effect. This gun rights bill that is out there that we're fighting along with the NRA as we speak, most people don't know about the part that's in there that somebody snuck in there 
somebody being a legislator, snuck in there and said, you can't fly with a firearm. Nobody realizes that somebody, somebody being a legislator, snuck in the part about you can't borrow somebody else's firearm if you were to go hunt with an outfit or a PH. People don't realize that. And people don't realize that SEI is there behind the scenes trying to get that stuff taken out before it ever gets to the floor. So it's an issue where you've got specifics that the liberal left is trying to make some changes that will affect hunters for the long term, not just till the next Congress is voted on, not until the next, you know, presidential election is, not until the next senatorial elections are held. These are, you know, rulings that could affect people for generations. And we've got to make sure that we're fighting this kind of stuff and not letting it happen by those that are misinformed, by those that are making decisions on emotions, and by those that are, you know, inadvertently, some cases, and in most cases, intentionally, taking data sets that are a very small part of the population to make a decision on or try to sell their decision about an issue rather than the big picture. That's where it's up to us to explain that. You know, we've got to make sure that we get through to the media and we get through to our membership to reach out to their congressman or congresswoman or senator uh, to say, we can't have this happen. And that's why you've got to be a member of SCI because you can have the greatest DU, National Wild Turkey Federation, Delta Waterfowl, Mule Deer Foundation. But what happens if you can't hunt them? What's going to happen then? Huge question. Buckle up. But it is springtime, Mr. Laird. It's almost, it's turkey season in Florida. It's about to open in Georgia and Alabama. It's, it's, it's here. It's um, the turning where the leaves, you know, start to really come back and we get the bloom. We start thinking maybe a little summertime. But it's also what your kids referred to as daddy spring break to where this time of year, you know, a little bit before this would have been the convention part of the four pillars. Yep. What are the expectations of SCI members today with the convention? What can we expect when we walk through the door? The anticipation, what are we trying to maintain what are we trying to achieve in those doors of the convention what is going on there it's not just a hey let's you know you go to the shot show and it's an industry show and you see new product coming out you go to nwtf in nashville every february great show Seventy thousand people walk the floor from all over that part of the southeast and the midwest of the united states of america and they get to meet will primos and get a slate caller they get to meet michael waddell or they get to meet jackie bushman the great buckmaster um what can we expect at the SCI convention and what do we look forward to? Where does that anticipation go for the members and for somebody like you and your, and your organization? Well, I, I mean, it's, we're all going to be so excited to get back together when it happens in January of 2022. I mean, just the reconnecting with old friends and family is going to be a big thing. We should be, and we all anticipate we will be out of, um, out of the um, COVID era. Our convention is January 19th through the 22nd. Uh, the, the January 18th uh, event is the Beretta event. It's a big gala, black tie only, uh, invitation only event on the 18th there at Mandalay Bay. 
uh, with the Beretta family coming in. It's it's a huge, huge deal. And then the convention kicks off on the 19th and culminates on Saturday night on the 22nd. But it's an opportunity for us to get together. It's going to be our 50th anniversary. It's going to be a complete blowout. Uh, we anticipate it being one of the best, if not the best ever conventions. I will say that we're going to Nashville, I mentioned earlier. Uh, we looked at the location where um, NWTF holds their convention every year in February. That would handle about one third of our convention. That goes to show you how big it is. So we're not even going to be uh, able to handle or hold it at the same location. We're having to go to the Nashville Convention Center. That's how big our convention is with over 2,000 booths. Uh, and I could tell you the hundreds of thousands of square feet of, uh, of convention space that we do use. So it is, um, it is something else. It is a place where people from around the world, not just the Southeast, not just the United States, not just North America, but people from around the world come. And what I mean by over 2,000 booths, that's 2,000 plus exhibitors. Um, and some of them have 10 booths, some of them have 20 booths. So it just goes to show you how many people from around the world are coming to uh, this SCI convention, which is the premier hunting convention uh, around the world. There's a couple of others. You got Jaeger and Hyam that's in Germany. You got Syngenica, which is in Madrid, Spain. Those are some other large uh, conventions. Unlike um, SHOT Show, which is a B2B, a business to business type of show, we're B2C, which is business to consumer. You can book a hunt there, which most people do while they're there. If you're spending the kind of money that you're going to spend on a mule deer hunt or an elk hunt, or, you know, in some cases, a hunt in Canada or Mexico or New Zealand, Australia, Africa, or something like that, you're going to spend that kind of money. You want to meet these people face to face. And this is the time to do it because anybody that's anybody will be at the, uh, at the SCI convention. I can't wait. I can't wait. I know you Me can't either. either. You look like a kid. <laughs> you look like a kid on Christmas Eve when you start talking about it. Oh, it's it's a lot of fun. And, and, and like I said, it just I'm ex I get so excited weeks ahead. I mean, it's a lot of work. Don't get me wrong. I'm having to do it as a job perspective, but just the fun of it all is just amazing. So, like I said, sometimes you don't get to see these people, but once a year, and it's at the SCI convention because they're, you know, outfitters that you hunted with, you know, 15, 20 years ago that they're busy, you're busy. They live on one continent, you live on another, and we all reconvene once a year at the SCI convention, and that's the key. I have two more thoughts before I let you go, and I truly appreciate you being here, Mr. Laird. You are a national treasure, and I mean that, and it's because the folks like you that are fighting the fight for us, um, we take it for granted sometimes. And where I'm going with this statement of taking it for granted, because you just said – you know, sometimes you don't get to see these people that you were just referred to as family, but once a year. That's been taken away from us the last little bit of our existence here in this country, in this world. Canadian borders, we touched on it being closed. I look forward every September and October to going up through Sweetgrass, Montana, or somewhere in North Dakota and crossing the border and seeing my Canadian family that I share absolutely zero blood with, but they're still my family. Yep. I went there every year, Mr. Laird, from 2000 one to 2019 it became part of my existence it's what i it was kind of like 
people saw me change with the weather of, oh, oh, there he goes. He's going into Canada for it's only August. Dog days of summer are still here, but he's starting to think about packing that truck and that trailer and the gun, you know, all the gun documents and all the passports and everything that was, it was getting ready, right? You were start, you said yourself, you started to pack weeks early for the convention. We have just spent 60 minutes talking about things that could be taken away from us if we're not careful. We just witnessed this. We just experienced this. I didn't get to go turkey hunting in Kentucky last year because they closed it down to non-residents or Nebraska. It's important, Mr. Laird. If, if, if somebody told me right now you're never allowed to go to Canada again because hunting has been outlawed or you can't bring a gun into Canada anymore, can you imagine how we would feel? We just experienced it, and that made me feel really, really low. You see where I'm going with this? We just went through this to where hunting was taken away from us, you know, in many ways in this past 12, 15 months. We got to fight for it, right, Mr. Laird? If we don't fight, nobody else is. And that's the question that we ask our members every day. If we don't do it, who is going to do it? We're the only organization that has on staff, multiple attorneys, on staff, multiple lobbyists, not to mention the extra lobbyists and extra, extra attorneys that we have on retainer, you know, not only in the United States, but around the world. So we've got to make sure that we're there to fight because if it's not us, then who? SCI is there for hunters and that's the key. And my final thought is when you talk to some people, they say, contact your assemblyman, contact your Senator's office. Communication is key. Clarification is key. Focus forward is key. Optimism is key. Can we talk to an SCI representative? Can we contact the national office in Washington, D.C.? Can we contact a chapter? Can we contact you? Can we get a question to you that might get answered personally by you? Are you out there for us to talk to and learn from, Mr. Laird? How do we go about that? And what can we expect from our treasured SCI uh, committee? Look, we've got one of the best websites out there. And, you know, go to www.safariclub.org. Again, www.safariclub.org. Go on there. If you're not a member, join. If you've got a question, there's a contact section. Reach out to us. They get to me. They do. Uh, and they get to Ben Cassidy, who's in charge of our advocacy. They get to Chip Honeycutt, who's in charge of our marketing and communications. We will get the answer or get you pointed in the right direction. But go to www.safariclub.org, join, and or submit any question that you like, or go to the blog and read all the conversations that are going on there that are ha happening uh, within the community. And you also can be found on Instagram at official underscore SCI with constant updates of everything we just discussed here at official underscore SCI on Instagram, Facebook, and www.safariclub.org. It's so important. I can't tell you what this conversation means to me because yesterday I was on a lake in Northern California with my 10-year-old daughter and her 11-year-old friend. Their names are Alyssa and Kennedy. And their, her, Kennedy's dad texted me last night and said, bro, I've never been more proud, I don't think, in my life. And I said, why? He said, 
They were casting by themselves. They were, they were reeling in by themselves. They were tying knots by themselves. They were flip casting, okay, with bait casting rods by themselves at 10 years old. And I thought about, wow, think about the trailblazers. Think about the pioneers. Think about our dads and our grandpas that had us out there following my dad's boots on a mule deer hunt in northern Washoe County, Nevada, or a chucker hunt in the Rim Rocks. I didn't start duck hunting, Mr. Laird, until later in life at 26, 27 years old. But to watch my daughter and her friend yesterday at 10 years old holding after they said we're ripping lips and they're holding those bass up for pictures and then teaching them the importance of catch and release as opposed to what we usually do with our ducks or our striped bass or our halibut or our walleyes in Minnesota or our perch or whatever. I sat there and I, I, I reminisced about my dad passed away. This will be the 15th year anniversary of his passing. But what he taught me and what a mentor means and mentorship and the mentorship that is provided by organizations like Safari Club International. I can't tell you what it means to me, Mr. Laird. This life is so special. It is such a privilege to be able to wake up and put our boots on and go out and be an American hunter and fisher and conservationist. And if it wasn't for SCI, I don't know where we would be. And I don't mean that just to end this podcast. I mean, we have to get involved because we just talked about what it means to take something for granted. And I never want to wake up and not be able to see my daughter reel in a three and a half pound bass or shoot at a canvas back bull drake and then harvest her first duck. That means the world to me. And I'm sure it does to you too, Mr. Laird. 100%. That's what we're here for. What, what are we passing along to our children? Think about that. Think about when you go to bed at night, what are you passing along to your children? It, money comes and goes. But what you're passing along to your children is memories. And you got to have those memories for your children to talk about it just like you and I are talking about it right now. And you got to provide those memories for your children. You don't have to do it every day. You don't have to do it every weekend but you've got to be able to have that opportunity to do it when the opportunity arises. So leave your children with some kind of legacy, some kind of memory, just like you talked about with your dad, same with my family. That's what it's all about. I thank you, sir. Thank you so much for being here. This, um, it's not done. It's not over. We will continue this conversation in person one day over a hot biscuit in a Mississippi or Arkansas or I don't know, Southeast Missouri, uh, Oklahoma, Texas, duck blind, Turkey woods. I can't wait to hunt with you, sir. I can't wait to see you at the 2022 national convention in Las Vegas, Nevada, January of 2022, www.safariclub.org. Become a member. It's so important. Any closing words, my friend? Thank you, sir. And uh, I, I echo the same here. I look forward to hunting with you. And uh, you never know when our paths are crossing before the convention. And I look forward to doing it uh, whenever it does. Take care of yourself. You too. That's Mr. Laird Hamberlin, CEO of Safari Club International and the Safari Club International Foundation, SCIF. Please become a member, support them, check them out on all of the social media platforms. And if you need any information from us and our association with SCI, we'd be more than happy to answer any questions at www.thefowllife.com. Or you can contact us at info at thefowllife.com, info at thefowllife.com. Send us a direct email and we will get you all the information you need about what we have going on here and our association and partnership with Safari Club International. Thank you all so much. Tom Jake, hit that button. This is 2AM Logic. The song is called My Foul Life. We'll be back at you guys and girls with another episode of the Foul Life Podcast shortly. Mm-hmm.